Today's Dead Idea, this is part two of our short series, shortish, on technocracy. And today we're going to hear snippets from the actual writings of technocrats from the 1930s, which will bring alive what they were like and what they thought their technological utopia would be like. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westoff, my lovely wife, whose gray technocrat breast coat looks pretty boss with those rockin' 80s shoulder pads she picked up at the booth market yesterday. (laughs) Uh, We talked a little bit about the booth market last time. That is the secondary economy in the technate after the whole energy certificate's official way of doing things. And if you had crafty goods or whatnot, just anything that you produced yourself You could sell it in the booth market, and it was fine. It was not a black market. It was just like a secondary kind of economy. I don't know that the 1930s technocrats, I don't know that they quite planned for the empire of shoulder pads that Rachel has planned, but (laughs) maybe we'll find out in their writings today. With me again today are my co-hosts for this series, John. Hello. And Ingrid. Hey. Hey. Uh, Quick reminder, also, once again, we're doing a free portrait giveaway for an honest review on Stitcher, specifically Stitcher. Review us. Even if you say we suck, just be among the first 20 people who review us on Stitcher, and I will draw you in the time period and culture of your choosing. More details at the end of the episode. All right, before we get going, we've got a certain tradition on this show of somewhere around the second episode in a series, we do a fake sponsor for a craft beer, usually a local beer. And today I've got something that is uh, kind of on theme a little bit, the kind of technological theme. John, I know you've, I've seen you drinking it before. Do you want to tell us about it at all? Yeah. So this is uh, called Dankbot. It's from Insight Brewing in Minneapolis here. Mm -hmm. Um, Dankbot is an IPA, which is not a surprise for me. Not a surprise that you like it. Yeah, not a surprise because I'm kind of an IPA now. It's described as being extra dank. I don't specifically (laughs) know what that taste sensation is like, but I can tell you that. Yeah, I can tell you that I like it and that it reminds me of the greatest Bernie Sanders memes. (laughs) (laughs) What? Those dank memes. Yeah, all the dank memes. All the dank memes. There is a pretty cool looking robot on the can. Yeah, there's the technological theme, right? Exactly. I look forward to the day when my job will be replaced with a dank bot. The dank bot. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. All right, so on with the show, huh? Yes. Okay. Okay. So last time we heard all about technocracy's 1930s plan to solve the Great Depression by turning over control to scientists and technicians. And in fact, the whole North American continent would become one unified nation under the technate. So go back and listen to that if you missed it. Today, we're going to put some flesh on those bones by reading from writings of the actual technocrats themselves from the Times. We've got lots of short snippets that will tell us kind of how they saw their times and how they envisioned their future, as well as just kind of how they saw just regular old things kind of happening, like fashion and food and things like that in the technique. So it should be interesting. First, let's see a little bit about how they saw their times. For this section, I've got some fun articles that come from a technocrat magazine. And these articles comment sometimes with more than a little bit of snark on the world of the 1930s, as the technocrats saw it. 
and despite the gray technocrat uniform, these snippets come alive with a little bit of color. So <laughs> let's check it out. Specifically, I have three snippets to share. These come from the 1937 issue of Technocrat News Magazine. And there's no author attribution in the magazine, but all of them are basically written by and for technocrats. And the 1937 issue predicted the collapse of the price system by 1940, oh. interestingly enough, which was in turn a repeat of an earlier prophecy of collapse by 1934. Oh. So, okay. kind of one of those deals. Yeah. yeah. That's the kind of climate that this magazine is writing in, right? So, John and Ingrid, I'm going to tell you the three that are available, and I'll let you choose which ones you want to hear first, okay? Okay. All right. So here are your choices. The first choice is a technocratic morality tale. <laughs> John's had a lot of experience with morality tales on this show. <laughs> the second choice is Roosevelt O. Roosevelt. <laughs> and the third choice is at the movies. Which do you want to hear first? I am tempted to go with the movies first. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. At the okay. movies. At the movies. So this is a review of the movie Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. <laughs> All right. And I didn't look up the plot of Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Maybe I should find that out. Should we rely on my vague memory of the Adam Sandler version? <laughs> the Adam Sandler remake from, oh. from the early 2000s. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So what's it about? <laughs> okay, so I, I here it remember. says, resident of a small town, Vermont, leads a simple life until he inherits a vast fortune from a late uncle. Soon unscrupulous lawyer, John Cedar, brings deeds to New York City, where the unassuming heir is the object of much media attention. Obviously. Okay, so it gets rich and... Yeah, and then is in the 2000 version, I'm sure he's preyed on by John C. Riley. No. Is he in there? It was a John. Yeah. Okay, here it is. Mr. Deeds goes to town. Reviewed by a technocrat. That's literally what it says here. And then the next line is, this is a asterisk, 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 asterisk price system display. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is really short. Uh, he writes, First, the picture exhibits that grand old American chance in a hundred million, often dignified by the names of incentive and rugged individualism, for which the other 999,999,999 are willing to starve. <laughs> Second, the one man in the play who was considered insane was the young hero who inherited $20 million but wanted to give it away because he was not predatory and did not care to start a corporation. The character and behavior of every other person in the play was distorted by his desire to grab some of Mr. Deed's money. Third, the lawyers were willing to say or do anything to get their hands on some of the money. Fourth, the great alienist, which, you know what an alienist yeah, is? Yeah, it's like a psychologist. It's an early name for a psychologist, psychiatrist type of thing. Yeah. yeah. The great alienist, a physician, proved for a fee that anyone who tooted a tuba <laughs> and wanted to give away $20 million is certainly a victim of dementia precox. Okay. <laughs> Fifth, the girl, and that's in quotes for some reason, the girl of the piece double-crossed the man she loved 
because her newspaper editor promised her two weeks vacation with pay. Sixth, the hero demonstrated effectively that the possession of $20 million is only a headache anyway, and that life can be pleasanter with plenty rather than with too much. Seventh, the testimony of two old maids who were really pixelated. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone tried to Pixel- expand their image. <laughs> <laughs> pixelated is what it says. It's in quotes. Who were really pixelated was accepted in a court of law to prove that the hero was pixelated. What? I'm not sure what that means. Eighth, the judge did manage to save the good name of the court by deciding the case on common sense rather than on legal technicalities, based upon testimony accepted... (laughs) (laughs) I may not be much of a judge, but but back home, uh, (laughs) we follow aphorisms. (laughs) Based upon testimony accepted by the court up to that point, a sane, normal American citizen could have gone to the insane asylum. Note, after the technate has been established... We must show this picture to our children to illustrate how dreadful was human behavior in the good old days of rugged individualism before technocracy. (laughs) (laughs) Sounded like the resolution was terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a little bit of snark. Yeah. A little bit of snark injected in there. Okay. So... The other two things you can choose from are a technocratic morality tale or Roosevelt o Roosevelt. Morality tale. Morality. Okay. <laughs> this is entitled Automatic Robot. <laughs> Unlike that damn manual robot. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it is common knowledge that fatigue of pilots is the cause of many accidents and that one great cause of pilot fatigue is the strain associated with constantly watching the very numerous dials now on the modern airplane instrumental panel. There has been invented, patented, thoroughly proven, and tested, in flight, a set of instruments for airplanes that will reduce accidents and save life. These instruments do not, however, add to the multiplicity of instruments, but simply show a red light when anything is wrong with any instrument. (laughs) Thus, only when a red light appears does a pilot have to look at any instrument. So this is a push (laughs) notification for your airline. The inventor has offered to give his patents to any airplane company that will agree to use them. Now, that, of course, means passing up millions of dollars, right? Yeah, it's an like, open I just source. Like, i hand them over to you as long as you promise to actually use them in your airplanes, right? Yeah, it's, it's an, a very Elon Muskian open source... Uh, <laughs> Shall yes. we say? Yes. yes. None have accepted. <laughs> he also offered his patents free to a large corporation that makes airplane instruments with the following result. The corporation agreed that the instruments were much needed... But since they had not yet made back the money invested in previous patents, they could not invest in this new one. These officials, acting in a perfect price system manner, realize they must protect the investment. Price and investment will not exist under a technological control, however. Therefore, there will be no interference with functional efficiency. 
Functional <laughs> control is imperative. Is imperative. <laughs> right. So that's the morality tale. It's like, it's like, this is what's completely wrong with the price system. Here's a perfect case study, right? This is how, you know, like, little boy blue price system, you yeah. know, learns his lesson and how the technate is better. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like the company is falling under this kind of sunk cost thing right where it's like we've invested this much so we can't go forward with well the other one it yet. could be that they just don't have enough liquid assets right but it sounded like the thing was being offered to them for free afterwards oh, right that it, yes yes but they would also need to investment yeah, money in order to, to produce yeah I this, assume. Is true. this is true yeah you just get the idea of it. Yeah, this is true. If they no, get the patent. Again, they offered him a patent, but not the capital, I guess, to... Yeah. Or they just thought about it and were like, this isn't useful. <laughs> yeah. Our, our pilots don't actually need this. They can read five different instruments. Thanks. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Thanks, <but no> things. <laughs> Which, there's, there's, there's a shit ton of instruments in a modern, like, sure. jumbo jet, but in 1937, I don't know how many yeah. they had. Probably, like, maybe 15? I don't know. It's but... almost like an argument against the technocracy that would force you to implement this new technology that's irrelevant well because it's been deemed important (laughs) sure okay that would be yeah Yeah. good point there it also kind of reminds me of idiocracy a little bit like you're just kind of like making it as easy as possible for Mm -hmm. the pilot to just like he can just be like homer simpson and just ignore everything unless like a little bleeping light is i need to check the altimeter (laughs) the red light's not on yeah, and that's the thing. Like the moment that red light fails and yeah. just doesn't come on, it's like somebody who doesn't check out their car if the check engine light doesn't come on. Where it's just like, oh, my car's making a really weird noise and is doing something right. awful, but no check engine light. <laughs> I'm good. Right. And granted, of course, you know, is it just one writer and one magazine? Yeah, so it doesn't yeah, represent yeah. the whole technocracy, right? But nevertheless, it adds color. Yes, right. It adds yes, color. Yes. Okay. So the last one is Roosevelt. Oh, Roosevelt. Oh, Roosevelt. All right. This is still very short, but the longest of the three. Okay. This is entitled Hydrology. And uh, this is especially relevant because one of the plans for radically increasing the amount of energy available in North America that the technocrats proposed involved this continental hydrology system of connecting all of our rivers and Great Lakes and everything with canals and putting like this massive network of hydroelectric dams on all that. So you can ship things fast, cheaply, and get tons of energy all at the same time too. And they thought it would be like a you know, tenfold increase in energy power. Hmm. Um, here, they're looking at Roosevelt and what he's going to do with hydrology and just being like, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, so in a message to the Senate on August 13th, President Roosevelt vetoed a joint resolution authorizing army engineers to submit to Congress a comprehensive system of national hydrology. President Roosevelt's message read in part, In my message of June 3, 1937, I proposed for the consideration of Congress a thoroughly democratic process of national planning of the conservation of the water and related land resources of our country. I express the belief that such a process of national planning should start at the bottom through the initiation of planning work in the state and local units, dot, dot, dot. The reverse of such a process is prescribed in Senate Joint Resolution Number 57. By this resolution, the War Department would become the national planning agency not alone for flood control, but for all the other multiple uses of water. So basically just 
kind of, we don't get a lot of details, but it's a lot of mumbo jumbo. They're trying to do something, right? And then the writer goes on. In May 1936, Mr. Howard Scott, who is, of course, the basically the head guy, uh, the front man for the technocracy movement. In May 1936, Mr. Howard Scott, presenting the problem of hydrology in Technocracy magazine, said, Technocracy offers gratuitously the general specifications for a continental hydrology control of North America, knowing full well that it is economic suicide under the price system for anyone who accepts it. <laughs> so in other words, his plan that I was talking about with all those canals and stuff would make energy so cheap that no company could make a profit, uh, I think is the idea. Yeah. So he knows that it would just destroy the economy. Sure. But who cares? Small upfront cost of redirecting yeah. all water in the um, country. <laughs> and ruining the migratory routes of yeah. all fish in the country. All salmon. <laughs> yeah. And then utopia. And the writer goes on. And again, in July 1937, quotes again Mr. Scott, Dare our government invest in a continental hydrology, a much-needed and tremendous development and control of the water resources of this continent, so that further hydroelectrical power, water, transportation, and soil preservation may be passed on as our heritage to the children of the new America. <laughs> then he goes on. As usual, the march of events is proving the correctness of technocracy's predictions. It should be like extra extra nerdy when he says that. As usual, the march of events is proving the correctness of technocracy's predictions. You can hear him pushing his glasses up. Yeah. Push, nose. <laughs> pushing the glasses up. By the veto of resolution number 57, the price system is serving notice on the citizens of the North American continent that no disinterested development of our continental hydrology will be tolerated. The price system realizes the danger in such a development. The planning of such a program from a strictly engineering standpoint would generate too many difficult problems for a price system government to cope with. Far better to limit it to sporadic, local puttering, under political control, prepared by all or the many government agencies concerned. And he's got <laughs> quotes around that. In the light of the president's proposals, it seems clear that a scientifically planned hydrology is to be prostituted for the dispensing of political patronage. <laughs> While the War Department plan could never achieve the desired results, it is obvious that here is one more example of the sabotaging of engineering procedure by price system interference. It must be realized that no amount of national tinkering will solve our hydrology problem. It is not national, but continental in its scope. The American technate will install a continental hydrology when price and price interference have disappeared from the American scene. Wow. There you go. Yeah. That's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so those are the three snippets from the Technocracy magazine. Okay. Give us just a little bit of color. Now, the next thing I've got is... Uh, list of snippets of how they envisioned actual life to be like in a technate, right? What we just heard was like their view on current times, this is going to be the future as they see it, right? right. And all of these are going to come from Harold Lebb, who was one of the main movers and shakers, and the guy who wrote Life in a Technocracy, What It Might Be Like. And again, I've got a list of topics. I'll let you choose which ones you want to hear first. All right, so here are the choices that you have to choose from. Cooking, fashion, Crime and punishment, entertainment, mating and natural selection, and opting out. Ooh. 
I I want to hear cooking. That's I am so <laughs> interested in what in the yeah. cooking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Here's the book, by the way. Nice. Ooh. I like the image is like Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Yeah, or yeah, something. yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, that impulse to see dystopia. Exactly. Which Metropolis was out by now. Yeah, that's true. So, okay, so cooking in a technique. Cooking would be unpopular only if the process of cooking remained an art, as it is at present, and not a technology. (laughs) (laughs) Cooking could, of course, be standardized. (laughs) But though the product might well be excellent, and there's a parenthetical comment, in London, American canned tomato soup is adjudged superior to the product of the local chefs by English connoisseurs. (laughs) That might be true. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder what English chefs would say about that. I don't know. But the human stomach requires not only excellence, but continuous slight variations, novelty, to abet the flow of the gastric juices. This (laughs) (laughs) This latter requirement cannot be filled by a technological process. Since the arts are outside the scope of the technocracy, a way to divorce cooking from the system is desirable. Curiously, a device which will attain this objective has already been invented and tested. The the one pot? (laughs) (laughs) I basically meant the one pot. By means of a high-frequency current, an object can be heated from the inside out instead of from the outside in. Thus, to cook an egg, 18 seconds are required instead of three and one half minutes. The same proportion holds good for other foods. I wonder if it's like microwave? microwave? That's it what it sounds microwave-ish. Yeah. yeah. Should we double check to see when that was invented? Yeah. I think yeah. So. yeah. Ah, at the 1933 Chicago World's ah. Fair, Westinghouse demonstrated the cooking of foods between two metal plates attached to... A 10 kilowatt, 60 megahertz shortwave transmitter. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably what he's talking about. That's awesome. Okay. The restaurant of the future may have as its central feature a series of hollow tables. In these, the ingredients chosen and proportioned by the diner are placed. A dial governs the time. Having adjusted the minute hand so that the roast or casserole will come out rare or medium or well done according to taste... The diner throws on the current. (laughs) (laughs) In a few moments, the repast, steaming and delicious, shoots up from the interior of the table, just as toast leaps up behind the lunch counter. (laughs) And the gourmet proceeds with his meal, enjoying that extra gusto, which comes from having directed the operation himself. (laughs) Of course, the same installation would be available for the home dining room. Hmm. That's wow. cooking. Well, yeah, right. cooking so is this in the technique. More like replicators, or more like uh... more like just the dial on your microwave. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. All right, so now you can choose fashion, crime and punishment, entertainment, mating and natural selection, or opting out. Mating and natural selection. <laughs> mating and natural selection. Or it out of that is. <laughs> Every man and woman would possess equal and absolute economic security. Consequently, possessions would not be a factor in mating. Since man would still be domesticated and therefore subject from social pressure, 
to the mores and ideals of his community, mates, at any rate, parents, would not be chosen on impulse because of some evanescent sexual excitation. (laughs) (laughs) On the contrary, more thought would probably be given to deciding which individual would be a proper partner for continuing the career of the eternal seed than today. <laughs> when, the way... <laughs> when the ways and means of raising each new carrier to maturity is so grave a preoccupation. Carrier? Thus, sexual selection would continue to affect the species, but instead of the race tending to approach the ideal of a capitalist society, and... <laughs> an ideal largely concerned with money-making abilities, the race in a technocracy would tend to approach other ideal types. Snobbism, if nothing else, would tend to affect this. Whoa. (laughs) Snobbism? I think he means that in a technocracy, you would want to be as smart as possible, as prestigious as possible, and therefore you snobs would want to mate with other snobs yeah so you wouldn't you wouldn't like you would go on a date and then check their radio dials and if they don't have like a couple of npr stations you would probably (laughs) start ghosting them (laughs) something like that perhaps yeah a little little snobby in your choice of partner okay yeah that's that's what i think because when I first heard them talking about that, I was very worried that they were leading to kind of like weirdo eugenicist Eugenics, yeah. uh, kind of. I mean, they kind of which are. Which was also They're... popular in America it in was the very early. very popular. Yeah. 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 In 1930s-ish. So they're saying it would be similar to what they think would happen in a capitalist society, but the ideals would be... Different. So it wouldn't yeah. be Intelligence rather than... Yeah, but it doesn't sound like they're planning to do any central planning of that they're just saying they're just predicting what the outcomes would be of this central planning for other stuff yeah okay the they're they're just commenting on the differences in people's criteria when they swipe right versus swipe left basically yeah yep and in this kind of post-scarcity sort of setup like how that would change yeah certain communities would undoubtedly emphasize physical beauty and thus embellish the look of the race and enhance its diversity Others, concentrated on functions more mental, would choose partners distinguished for their accomplishments in science or philosophy. Still others, enamored of the social graces, would mate with an eye to refinement and urbanity. Efficiency also, and vitality, would not be lost sight of, and surely there would be other communities convinced that the meaning of existence was glimpsed, if it was ever glimpsed, by those individuals called artistic geniuses which would seek to perpetuate and intensify the gift for aesthetic expression. So, so date whoever you want because everyone has good qualities? Is that kind well, of... Well, except you're not going to be basing your selection based on money and money-making abilities. Sure, okay, that's the difference. Unless yeah. we're talking about who does really but... well in the booth economy. <laughs> 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 right. Who sells the most green cards yeah. for oh. diamonds. Yeah. Do you do well on Etsy? Well, <laughs> you might do well on Tinder, too. <laughs> so we're going to concentrate people's artistic abilities by valuing them higher, but also yeah. people's intelligence and attractiveness? Was I, that the other I guess so. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like, like there are so many criteria that feel like, and even then, if your theory of natural selection but or whatever that, that was going to be very community-based. So different communities might have different right. standards, etc. Yes. So that's yeah. uh, it's pretty open-ended. Yes. Yeah. And it goes, I'm not going to read more because it'll go on and on, but it does go on to have a little bit of a pretty funky view of how fast 
human evolution might happen. Like they think like right. start to turn into like slightly elvish looking people pretty quickly, <laughs> but you know, just kind of lift and slender we're and beautiful. We're about but... 60 years away from turning into Morlocks. <laughs> yeah. So pretty interesting. Okay. So that is meeting a natural selection. <laughs> now fashion, crime and punishment, entertainment or opting out. Crime. Crime. Crime Crime and punishment. punishment. Okay. Most criminals have warped natures due to suffering in childhood, either from their parents' misery or their own destitution. In a technocracy, these would grow up straight. Many crimes are directly impelled by hunger or cold. Such crimes would not occur. This leaves, as potential criminals, only the mentally defective and those who, from lack of control or over vehement emotion, perpetuate some violent act. Both these classes would be left to the care of the state medical department. Hmm. A technocracy would have a sufficient surplus of human energy at its disposal to expand enormously the state sanitation work both in scope and personnel. Each branch of every industry would have its medical and psychological inspectors. Okay. So, like, kind of like I was saying before, like, crime would be dealt with like a medical problem. Sure. And it is interesting that they do specifically call out psychological inspectors. Yeah. I mean, even in the 1930s, they're given credence to a kind of, you know, mental therapy kind of thing. Yeah. However scary that might have been in the sure. 1930s, right? Yeah. All right. Skipping along a little bit, mental defectives would inevitably be recognized. When suspected of dangerous tendencies, their habits would be watched. When necessary, their actions restrained. The other kind of crime, that due to passion, can hardly be prevented. Probably life will be fuller in a technocracy and shifts of scene more feasible. The greater freedom which results from economic security may reduce that variety of suffering conducive to violent outbursts, but this cannot be guaranteed in advance. Technocracy does not pretend to abolish human suffering. Technocracy pretends to prevent only unnecessary suffering. Suffering from hunger when food is rotting in the fields. Suffering from pride when all respectable means of livelihood are refused. Suffering from loneliness when beings equally lonely behind a thin partition are unavailable for the reason that our predatory system makes us suspect strangers. Men will still know hell on earth, but many more men will also know heaven. Okay. Wow. No. So there's a bit of a pre-crime kind of thing going on there. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a little bit... What was that called? The Tom Cruise movie? Uh, Minority Report. Minority Report. Minority yeah. Report. There's a yeah. little bit of a Minority Report vibe. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yep. To be the inspector whose job it is to, through 1930s era psychiatry, decides who's going to be a criminal and like who to watch and stuff like that. Yep. Be an interesting job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes on to say that there wouldn't be any... like punishment as we know it but it would all be like basically medical therapy and then one of my favorite parts in a technocracy the punishment for habitual dirtiness (laughs) 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 the punishment for habitual dirtiness would be transfer to the cleaning department if the dirtiness was indulged in at the factory transfer to the Department of Sewage Disposal if the offenses were committed in the residential district. Oh, so you can go to the sewer now. (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, yeah, if you're not good at, if you're not good at cleanliness, we're going to put you in charge of cleanliness. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to send you to go live with the chuds. (laughs) (laughs) I think the basic idea is like, 
the punishment follows rationally from the crime, yes. right? Like yes. you're if you if you don't keep things clean for everybody, then we're gonna make you be the one who you know yeah totally. has to deal with that. So you're right? sent to work in the yeah agency. Okay, yeah, you're not you sent to them for cleaning. That's what I. <laughs> oh, that was no, how right? I read it too. Like, <laughs> no, which seemed really kind of interesting. Like yeah, if, if you perpetrate crimes of cleanliness, you <laughs> become the cleaner that cleans wow. for everybody because. Presumably, the idea is not many people would want that job, and so... Yeah, and it has kind of, like, a grade school kind of uh, quality to the yeah. punishment. Yeah. Like... Shirking would be penalized in much the same way. In other words, being lazy, right? Um, that is to say, by transfer to one of the less agreeable labor tasks. If this task was also shirked, as a last measure, the energy certificate could be canceled. So, in other words, take away your allowance money. This punishment, <laughs> this punishment should prove efficacious in most cases. When an individual proved obstinately recalcitrant for obscure reasons, the psychiatrist would attempt to unravel the trouble. In no case should real punishment, such as solitary confinement or labor forced by physical threats, be necessary. Right. But by taking away an energy credit, you are essentially saying that if you do not do this work, you could be out of the system and unable to get food. Right. And... I mean, all you'd have left is Etsy and Pinterest at the yeah, booth market. Is, you know? Yeah. And you'd or, have to have something to trade for it, too. Yeah. those You're going to run out of diamonds to trade for artisanal gummy bears after a while. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's incentive enough. I don't know. All right. So we have left fashion, entertainment, and opting out. Opting out, opting, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. opting out. That that seems to follow logically from yeah. what we just yeah. had. Okay, the individual may dissolve the contract without notice, and that means the contract with the whole technate, your oh. relationship to the the technate, the government. The individual may dissolve the contract without notice. That many will choose to do so is not likely. Living outside the system, living by Stone Age standards. <laughs> except for borrowed tools and gifts, would be disagreeable for most people. Doubtless, a few zealots, artists, nature lovers, ascetics, would try living on their own resources. Also, individuals who might be called congenital servants, quote-unquote, may prefer personal service to some private person to the normal state duties, but such individuals would probably become rarer as technocracy became the accepted way of life. Interesting. So in other words, if you don't like it, you don't have to. Just gonna suck for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that makes sense. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. Not paying it, taxes. Yeah. You're not the equivalent of taxes, which is sixteen hours a week of work. Yeah. Right. You just wouldn't get your ergs. Yeah, you wouldn't get your yeah. energy certificate. But you could theoretically still use any of the public goods that are being created. Well, well no. to consume goods, um, you need to have the energy certificate. Yeah, but yeah, I guess you would have to avail yourself upon other people's charity yeah. or have something to trade at the booth market. Yeah, so I could see like in this setup, like communities of Amish still doing their thing sure. outside of the system and selling their artisanally made goods in the booth market 
for the stuff that they need from the English or yeah. whatever, you know. Oh my God, could you imagine in the Technate, there's like this tiny little community like the Amish is to us, but that are capitalists. <laughs> 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 they just have this little economy that's like two towns big. <laughs> they trade ju- with each other. Your stock market. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Yeah, and they, everybody looks at him as backwards, you know. <laughs> and they're like, "We're living the pure life of capitalism." <laughs> <laughs> Reading Ayn Rand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, uh, fashion or entertainment? Fashion. Yeah, fashion. All right. The state designers are preoccupied with standardized clothes. Yes, finally. <laughs> <laughs> but there is no reason to think that considerable variety to suit many tastes will not be permitted. Each industry will have its special costume (laughs) designed to serve the specific purpose. These costumes are not necessarily ugly any more than peasant costumes or railroad bridges are ugly. The standardizing of clothes, as can still be seen in parts of the old world and in every army, tends to render collective scenes attractive and to (laughs) emphasize the character of an individual when he has one. Wow. Such such costumes and dress and recreation clothes will be provided by the state on the energy certificates. The state also delivers on-demand materials, dyes, and so forth, the stuff of which clothes are made. With so much leisure at everyone's disposal, there is little doubt but that costume designing will become a leading amateur hobby. So, so they're providing the yeah. standard outfit, like, but allowing for... Allowing Pieces for you to, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, Rachel can do her shoulder pads and sell them on the, exactly. the booth market. It seems like the booth market is their solution to a lot of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good outlet. You know? Yeah, yeah. Totally. I mean, the idea of the booth market is that all of the important stuff that you really need to survive mm-hmm. and prosper are taken care of. Totally. So the booth market will only really be for the other little bonus items, you know, totally. that just make you feel good, yep. you know? You'd have a booth market barista that, you know, can do a little leaf in the coffee as they Totally. Pour, and that's, know. it's a thing that I think like appeals to a lot of people's interest in just having that little extra or those little creative touches where I think there's a fear among a lot of people of this kind of centrally planned thing becoming very bland and like all beige. Yeah. And, coats and, and yeah, the idea you. of, they had this idea that like cars with cars, one kind of automobile. Seriously. (laughs) And they would all be gray. (laughs) And I mean, they'd have like trucks because that's a different purpose than a standard Mm -hmm. automobile. But automobiles in general, the way most people use them, one kind. And they'd all be made the same so that each different factory could make the same parts and they all fit into any automobile. They'd all be painted gray. And there was, in fact, in 1947, for real, there was some kind of special event called Operation Columbia, they all, the whole bunch of them, like a couple hundred technocrats, all painted their cars gray and (laughs) drove them along the West Coast from California across the border into Canada as kind of like a raising awareness of technocracy kind of thing and an expression of like transcontinental unity. And you could see their technocracy made documentary of it. 
And that's what the on the first episode at the beginning. That's what I drew the um, audio from. Oh, nice. Operation Columbia, <laughs> and they it was just this like fleet of gray cars. Look at all of our cool gray cars. <laughs> Question: Are were personalized license plates still an option? <laughs> Can you still have like Big Mama on the back of you? <laughs> Ass man. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine that that kind of stuff would be like something you could get on the booth market, yeah. and I bet. I would imagine that you could, if you had your own car, although you might obtain it from the factory as standard, you could probably soup it up using yeah. parts that you get on the booth market sure. or whatever, or that you you know fabricate yourself if you have the talent. So, yeah, I, I could see that. You may not own your own vehicle, though. I hmm. saw a reference, and I think it was by a much later decade, not the kind of original 30s-ish ideas, but I think it was an idea that cars might be organized kind of like the like a public system sure. kind of like in minneapolis we have the nice ride bikes yeah. yep. which yeah. for anybody who doesn't live in minneapolis which is almost all of our listeners we have this system i'm sure other cities have it too where there's like stations where bikes are parked and you can go and just like pay to rent one you take the bike ride it to wherever you want and then there's another station nearby where you can then leave that bike and then that's it um, car to go. But you just, yeah, I like car to go, yeah. kind of, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yep. So it would be more efficient, they thought, if cars were constantly running rather than spending 90% of their life in somebody's garage because everybody has their own. Also, be more environmentally friendly because you probably have more people, you know, ride sharing and stuff like that going on. And yeah. fewer costs of producing cars if there are. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Entertainment is the last one we have left. But are we not entertained already? <laughs> <laughs> to avoid an enormous increase in discontent and misery of the psychological variety, the consequence of multiplying the individual's leisure, provision must be made for pleasure stimulation. <laughs> stimulation centers. <laughs> Get into your gray robe. <laughs> This is where, of course, we, uh, you know, 2018, we totally expect the Soma from, like, 1984, yeah. right? Or, or was it Brave New World, I think, had Soma. Brave New World. Yeah, yeah. Brave New World. I think. Uh, okay, let's see what they say. The intermediate period, meaning, I think, the transition period to a technique, would be particularly difficult. At first, the state would have to support the existing movies, athletic contests, theaters, galleries, and periodicals. Doubtless, it would use its control to inculcate the ideas on which the technocracy was founded, as well <laughs> as well as endeavor to fulfill their basic purpose to amuse. So in other words, they're admitting, yeah, there's probably going to be some propaganda coming out. Yeah, there's no way those two things are incompatible. <laughs> <laughs> right. But later, a division of function would occur. The control of anything, the appeal of which is subjective such as the theater or painting, should not be entrusted to the state. A state may be entrusted with engineering projects, with the production of goods, to a lesser extent with the preservation of health. Values in these fields are objective and can be tested by trial and error experimentation. Consequently, skillful work is easily recognized and successful accomplishment allows of no debate. This is not so with the more subtle longings of the human soul. It is all too easy here to become ossified. Academic is the usual word. 
scope must be left for the free experimentation of countless individuals. The anomaly of today is often the marvel of our children. For these reasons, the state will assume in the field of amusement and art only the role of custodian. Museums, of course, will be its responsibility, and state theaters where the classics and the accepted work of contemporaries are reenacted. State movies will exhibit films of the past and new popular films in more lavish productions than the original creating group is able to command. So in other words there, I think they're saying, um, like for movies and plays and stuff, they're going to go with what's clearly proven to be popular, like classics and contemporary super popular stuff. Yep. But they're leaving non-state control for like experimental stuff and you know just anything yeah, and else. it almost feels it, like they're more propping up stuff that they know is going to be a good investment with state resources yes yes and then making allowance for a sizable indie market yeah yeah however in athletics the state will probably play a dominant role <laughs> <laughs> since professionalism becomes extinct <laughs> Uh, mm? Mm. (laughs) an impartial arbitrator and organizer will be needed. The state can best fulfill this role. So the state has to be the ref, apparently, (laughs) the umpire. Probably the various industries, as well as the territorial divisions, will compete in baseball and football. Also tennis, fencing, boxing, (laughs) field sports, and other individual exercises may enjoy even greater vogue when every individual has the means and leisure to indulge in them. During the first century of technocracy, sport will probably flourish wow. as it never has before. It's a very j- pro-jock. Yeah, it's it's something right. for the jocks. Yeah. yeah, they at least knew how to get them on their side, apparently. Yeah. Leisure must be filled, and the majority of Americans seem to turn to sport in their spare time. Mandatory I don't know leisure. why. <laughs> Writing enjoys a middle position. It's another transitioning to like literature and stuff, right? Yes. Most of it has no other excuse than its popular appeal, which can easily be measured. The state would present the work of popular writers on an energy cost basis. The larger the circulation, the cheaper would be the cost of the periodical or book. The state could not be entrusted to introduce unknown writers, though commercial publishers are no more to be trusted so again they're like yeah it won't be great but it'll be better than now yeah. <laughs> it's a question of which is the more fallible nevertheless in a technocracy every man as has been stated could get himself printed thus in the field of amusements the state would eventually limit itself to two functions it would undertake to distribute such amusements as attracted a popular following and it would undertake to preserve such amusements as had a popular following or general recognition, which amounts, after the lapse of time, to much the same thing. The state would surrender to the individual and to the local group the responsibility of developing new forms and content. In other words, the responsibility of keeping the amusement alive. At present, business, in the guise of publisher and producer, has a finger in this pot, A finger that sometimes spoils the taste. (laughs) (laughs) To turn back the responsibility of first production to the creator would mean little loss and much gain to both art and the creator. Okay. Thoughts? Yeah, Yeah, I'm really curious about a lot of this, like just how they judge the relative popularity, because like 
essentially you're not coming into this fresh. You're coming into this with stuff already popular based on the old system. So mm-hmm. I, I can imagine. I mean, they're, they're already in the mode of tracking things really closely yeah, with data. So I can imagine them having like a Nielsen rating system for a lot of stuff, you know, yeah. where they're like anything over this amount gets to be on like primetime TV and that's free for everybody and the state's going to run it. Everything else is like cable yeah. and that's like indie market. Yeah. Sounds entertaining to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, what I want to know is what are going to, what are the uh, mascots of the sports teams going to be in a technique? Yeah. <laughs> <It's good>. um, <laughs> uh, Cogs. Yeah, the Chicago Cogs gears. gears. <laughs> all right well any other thoughts before we end this episode one thing i would be very curious about is like how would the technate or did they even think about this would the technate expect to defend itself from other powers Ooh, yes very interesting because it would be like a superpower if it controlled the entire like north half of the Western Hemisphere. But still, like people might try and mess with it. Yes, absolutely. And it's specifically addressed in Harold Epps book. Okay, so here's what he said. So first of all, um, there's nothing in the technocratic ideas that are expansionist, really. So you're not right. going to be starting wars yourself. And he specifically says that even in late capitalism, as they were experiencing it, wars of expansion were becoming like more trouble than they're worth. You know, and they weren't really making profit. Colonialism uh, is already starting to show kind of, um, you know, signs of wear, you know, it's soon to be done by World War II. Official colonialism, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first of all, you're not going to be making war, but national defense is still going to be a huge issue, especially if you're going to be a country with the best technology and shitloads of piles of it everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly what yeah. all throughout history has caused people to come down from the mountains and the hills to take over and, you know, the barbarians invade and then they're the new people on top, right? Yep. So how do you address that problem? So he thought that if the technate were attacked, it might take a little bit of time for the technate to switch their industries around, you know, to be totally focused on defense, right. war effort. But people would prepare blueprints for that kind of transition of factories in advance so that you'd have a plan in place of how to do it. Mm-hmm. In the time that it takes to do that switch out, the enemy might be able to maybe like bomb one place, maybe even land an army on a shore and take a city. Right. But in pretty quick time, everybody in the country being focused on the war effort And also, you would be expected to contribute more than your 16 hours per week. You would be up to, like, 40 to 60 hours per week. Okay, so it would be a mobilization. It would be a mass mobilization of everybody. And as soon as, like, tanks and whatnot start coming off the line, you would start training people to use them, too. Right. Pretty quickly, the enemy would just not be able to cope at all with the amount of stuff coming off the line and thrown at them. So there would be like a Zerg rush of the, these, yes. of like tanks controlled by inexperienced people. <laughs> yeah, more or less. It, Charging didn't, the barbarian lines. It, it sounded like there wasn't going to be a standing army. No. It didn't mention a standing like army. A standing army. So yeah, they might be fairly inexperienced, which to me sounds like a little bit of a liability. But 
Who am I to say, right? Yeah. Again, save point. Let's try it. Yeah, like <laughs> if you throw enough tanks yeah. at an invading force, it'll probably work eventually, yeah. right? Yeah, but he thought, yeah, you would just, it'd be only be a matter of time that you would kick out that invading army in any way you would have the most advanced defense technology in the world because you're the technate right and Which nobody would want to attack you in the first an place interesting thought like the they seem to be going off the assumption that they will continue to experience rapid technological development right yes um which i i don't know mm-hmm. so i'm not sure what they base that assumption on right and that is addressed as well Okay. Because one of the criticisms they're seeming to defend against is that in the absence of making money, what's your motivation for basically sure. doing anything? You just yeah. everybody does everybody just get fat and lazy? And they're saying no. And if you look at salaried researchers in corporations at their time, or we can think of even in our time, you don't make money based on how much you produce. Right. You're salaried, right? But you still make advancements. Mm-hmm. So what's your motivation? Is it the money? No. Your motivation is either your passion for discovery or for prestige and so on. Also, what's the other thing I was going to say? Oh, right. The other thing is, even when you actually think and believe that your motivation is making money, for most people, it's actually not. Except if you're like in, say, like the bottom 20% or whatever of income level. For most people, you could do just fine at the income level you're at. But what you're really after is prestige. Right. And that money you're using to buy more and more prestige items to keep up with the Joneses. True. Now, in the technate, you would still keep up with the Joneses. Because prestige is still a thing. Human nature is still the way it is. Yep. But the way that you would keep up with the Joneses is being the most efficient. Being the most, like, cutting edge. Being the most environmentally forward-thinking. And instead of having just raw, conspicuous consumption as a display of wealth, you'd have conspicuous efficiency. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that would be your motivation to keep advancing, advancing, advancing. Sure. Yeah. Also, the amount of your allowance that you get each year is based on all the surplus energy that's left over after the overhead of the entire country. So that's constantly going up and going down. Sure. And it's the same for everybody, but everybody collectively would get more money, not get more money, but you know what I mean? More you energy get credits. More energy credits. Yeah. You can consume more stuff if you could all be more efficient. Sure. sure. Yeah. And like, so with the energy credits, I was kind of curious, is that a measurement of a specific unit of energy or was it more vague when they were envisioning it? Um. So it's more like a, like a traveler's check Okay. where you can write it in for any amount. Yep. And then it's just like that is then transmitted to yep. that central record keeping place. And then they just deduct it from your biannual allowance. Sure. But it's not like it's measuring a certain number of like kilowatt hours or joules of energy used in production or something. The ERG measures that. I see. Okay. So the ERG measures kilocalories. Kilowatt uh, calories. Okay, so very much like the, uh, uh-huh. the weirdo future economy as envisioned in the Forever War. Yes. 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 Very much like that. And yes. I don't know when that was written. It might have even 70s. gotten... 70s. Could have been influenced by this. Could be, yeah. Anyway, production would be measured in terms of ergs and mm-hmm. kilocalories, right? And then that constitutes the cost that is deducted from your allowance. 
Right. And the energy certificates are really just like just just like having a book of checks. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Anything else you wanted to ask? That's <laughs> I think a I lot of my, information. I got sure worth here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How much do we owe you? <laughs> See, you can't even use up all of your allowance yeah. of energy that you could consume <laughs> on this podcast. Okay, well, let's cut it off there for this uh, this episode. The next episode will uh, probably be our last episode. I did contact Technocracy Inc., the actual... Oh. Yeah, to see if they wanted to do an in- interview, and I haven't heard anything back yet, but if they do, I we may have an extra episode at some point, but probably the next episode will be our, our finale here. Okay. And what we'll do in the next episode, and that's going to be the alternate history one, where we're going to have a kind of like a gamified way of deciding how history plays out with an actual technate in the world. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's next week. Be sure to tune in for that. Also, remember to get your review in on Stitcher for the free portrait giveaway. You can also support the show, and $5 a month gets you not only ad-free episodes, but also a portrait in the time period of culture of your choosing. So two ways to get it, the Stitcher ad or supporting on Patreon. I will draw you in your gray technocrat automobile amongst fleets of other identical gray technocrat automobiles. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever you want, I don't care. Just support the show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. Thanks for being on the show once again, John and Ingrid. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. All right, I'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.